The Easter season recounts the preparation of Jesus as the Passover lamb and moves from the sacrifice on the cross to the celebration of a risen Savior. What did the cross and resurrection achieve? In a word, life. Christ's saving work on our behalf is the good news of eternal life, and this good news calls each of us to faith and repentance. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. But it sure didn't look that way on Saturday. On Saturday, conversations about a, a kingdom well, they were remembered, I suppose, but they were... It was hard to think of them as anything but futile. Pointless. Conversations about eternal life were, were hard to place in context when the one with whom you've had that conversation is well and truly dead. Conversations about hope, restoration, Saturday was dark. We have very little in the Word of God about the disciples' behavior on Saturday. We have this moment in our text this morning that lets us in on a little bit of a different perspective on Saturday. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, either in sort of book form or on an app, something where you can join me at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew, the first book in your New Testament, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. you have the outline, either having picked it up, printed on the way in, or you've accessed it digitally as the PDF or whatever, my first point this morning is the apparent defeat. The apparent defeat. Now, I, I stand by that, that sort of sectional heading. My point being that the defeat of Saturday is, a, is, is going to get blasted away. But I'm, I'm cautious and a little bit fearful of using the word apparent because there have, there have been those down the, down the 2,000 year history of denying the reality of the resurrection and the crucifixion before. There have been those who have held that Jesus' apparent death on the cross was something less. That, that what, what happened on the cross was basically just, well, he got, he got hurt real bad. On Thursday evening last, we spent some time talking about the realities of crucifixion. And I won't go into that level of detail, but, but to remind us, in the pre-dawn hours of Friday, he had already experienced 
the ripping out of his beard by the handful. He had already experienced the, the crown of thorns which would have led to a bunch of, of, of scalp lacerations and the beginning of, of the bleeding out, the exsanguination that would get worse as the day goes forward. He's already experienced, worst of all, in those pre-dawn hours, the, the Roman scourge. That is a, a multi-thong whip where each strap of that whip is embedded with, with sharpened bits of metal or, or ceramic or, or whatever was available that could be sharpened and serrated. And that is wrapped around the body, the body stretched out, hanging by its wrist. That, that scourge is wrapped around the body and yanked back forcefully dozens of times. The upper abdomen, what would be exposed are the ribs as the flesh is torn off. The lower abdomen, unprotected by the rib cage, muscle and flesh torn away, intestines exposed to the air. All of that before we get to crucifixion. In crucifixion, of course, the spikes driven through the forearm and ankles, more massive blood loss. And then as the body is actually hung on the cross, asphyxiation as the, the distended abdomen can only catch a breath when weight is forced onto that ankle spike for a moment for a gasping, fleeting breath. Progressively, asphyxiation builds. A spear thrust up through his side to the piercing of the pericardial sac so that a massive volume of, of blood and clear fluid water comes gushing out of a wound in his side and by 3 p.m. he is well and truly dead. The cynics say he was only so badly hurt that a short nap in a borrowed tomb was all it took to reanimate him. Hogwash. He died on Friday afternoon. And while the disciples had every reason to know that his death would be passing, well, that's a big deal. And it looks like defeat. It is not that he only apparently died. He actually died. And in his actual death is every appearance of defeat. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that as we celebrate Easter Sunday, and well we should, that we don't stride lightly through Friday and Saturday. Saturday, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62, apparent defeat. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, that is we are now on the Sabbath day of the Passover weekend, we're on Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Now, 
at the risk of interrupting the flow of thought, I need, I need to put a footnote here for a moment regarding these three days. You and I are, many of us, most of us, are products of a, of, a, of a North American culture largely influenced by the European culture. Again, many different other cultural streams represented in the room, but in terms of, of our, our, our logical wiring, we, we read three days and we equate that to a 72-hour period, three times 24, three days. But in the Jewish reckoning, from which and into which the Gospels were written. In the Jewish reckoning, a day is any part of a day where the day marker is sunset. Day one is Friday before sunset, where between the hours of 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., his, his burial in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, that rock-hewn tomb, is arranged. And Jesus is dead and in that grave by sunset. Friday is day one. Saturday from sunset, what you and I would call sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, is day two. And then Sunday begins, the first day of the week begins with sunset on Saturday. That is day three in the reckoning which the original readers would have understood. After three days I will rise. I rejoin the text in verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate, who is the Roman imperial governor of the province of Judea, the highest ranking government official we meet in the Gospels. The representative of the Roman Empire in what the Roman Empire saw as the Roman province of Judea. You and I would see it as the land of Israel. Roman governor Pilate, the same one who the day before had sentenced Jesus to the cross, capitulates to their request and says, all right, you have a guard of soldiers. Go <laughs> make it as secure as you can. I love that. In fact, if you've got a Bible that you can highlight or a Bible app that you can swipe something and highlight it, you ought to highlight that statement, make it as secure as you can, and you ought to draw a smiley face out in the margin. Because they're going to do that. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Well, I see in that paragraph three sort of representations, three reminders of the arrayed and arranged power of a fallen world and a corrupt universe seeking to interrupt and disrupt the agenda of the king. First, letter A on your outline, I see the stone. The stone reminds us of the natural order of things. This, this artificial cave in which Jesus was buried would have, been, would have been hewn out of the stone of a natural cliffside. 
And this grave covering stone, the entrance to the tomb, large enough that people can come and go through it. So you're talking about probably a carved disc of stone, six, seven, eight feet in diameter. It is placed across the mouth of that grave cave. It's heavy, it's formidable, and by design, it's permanent. It reminds us that in the natural order of things, death keeps its victims. It is a consequence of my vocational calling that I am present at more than my fair share of funerals. It is a consequence that unless you're in the medical profession, I may have been in the final moments of the ICU more often than some of you. When the switches are turned off and the equipment is disconnected, I've stood by the open caskets, the closed caskets, the urns. One could get the impression that death keeps its victims. Until it doesn't, but we'll get to that in a minute. That stone says death is a one-way passage and there is no exit. Not only the stone, but the seal. The seal that Pilate ordered would have, would have had at least two components, two, two major things going on with that seal. First, the, the circumference, the edge of that great stone disc would have been caulked into place if you will, with melted metal. They would have taken molten metal and, and gone around the edge of that stone, sealing it against the cliff face. And then, lest you misunderstand the intent, at one edge of that great stone, a large glob of that same softened metal would have been affixed on the, on the stone and on the cliff face wall. And into that glob of molten metal would have been embossed the seal of the Roman Empire saying, if you have it in mind today to mess with a grave, you surely do not want to mess with this one. The seal of Caesar is on this grave. By that, I am reminded by the one the word of God calls the prince of this world. Caesar, the most powerful human being of his day, evokes to me that the, the, the prince of this world, the devil himself, would do and would have done anything in the world to disrupt and interrupt 
counteract the resurrection of Christ. Not only the stone and not only the seal, but the soldiers. <clears throat> On pain of death, fulfill your duty. Guard that tomb. To me, they are a reminder of the flesh. All that fallen humanity can do to interrupt and disrupt the agenda of the king, fallen humanity will do. Before you came to faith in Christ, if you have come to faith in Christ, before you were a Christian, if you are now a Christian, before you were saved, you would have, you would have wished like anything that the resurrection of Christ would just go away. You would, you would desire to embrace your unbelief. Remember, over and over again, in, in figure of speech after figure of speech, in plain description after plain description, the Bible makes it clear that while an unbeliever can have honest questions, while there is room for a, a struggle to understand and believe, that the heart of unbelief is the heart. Jesus said, this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You're born again this morning, and I pray that you are. It's not that your fallenness one day got smart enough to be saved. It's not that your rebellion against God one day was reversed by you turning over a new leaf. Your fallenness was overwhelmed, as we're about to see these soldiers be overwhelmed. Roman numeral two, the arrival of dawn. Chapter 28, Matthew, we just continue. Chapter 28, verses one through four. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, there is a, a succession through the, through the hours at around dawn of people who come and go from the empty tomb of Jesus. No one of the four gospels includes all of the people who came and went from the empty tomb. So what I'm, gonna, what I'm going to do uh, this week on Beyond the Notes, if you're interested in, in, in having sort of the, the straightened out chronology of all of the appearances 
and of Jesus after the resurrection, including all of the chronology of the coming and going at the empty tomb. I'll lay that out for you this week on Beyond the Notes. It'll be my privilege to do so and to point you to a couple of really valuable resources for that. For this morning, we'll stay with Matthew's account. While it is not exhaustively complete, the other gospels contribute, it is nonetheless utterly accurate. And in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, an event had occurred in that tomb. Somewhere in the pre-dawn of Sunday, the spirit of Jesus Christ rejoined with his now recreated resurrection body. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave physically. The body that had died was recreated as a resurrection body. All of humanity will live eternally in a resurrection body. The eternal state is not disembodied spirit. There will be resurrected bodies, living human beings in hell forever in resurrection bodies. There will be human beings alive forever in heaven in resurrected bodies. The difference is how you respond to the gospel of Christ. Jesus, in the pre-dawn hours of that first Easter, is issued resurrection body serial number 000000000001. He gets the first one. And unbound by such a trivial thing as physics, he walked out of the grave. The angel did not move the stone to let Jesus out. Jesus was already gone from the tomb. The angel moved the stone to let the witnesses in, not to let Jesus out. So, letter A on your outline, the stone was removed. And that angel didn't need a crowd and a crowbar. That angel did not contemplate the great weight of that rock. I just love that that, that he he rolled it aside and sat on it. He turned the stone into a sofa. And as for the seal, as I gaze deeply into the text and apply the depth of my academic preparation, I cannot see the moment where the angel is all that impressed with Caesar telling him not to mess with that grave. I just missed that part. I don't see that angel impressed one bit by either that bead of metal caulk or the oh-so-important seal of Caesar. And around that grave on the ground fell the shreds of satanic opposition to the resurrection of Jesus. 
We sang in a moment ago in the song that, that the cross was in part a representation of a battle between darkness and light. I don't mind that language. Scripture uses that language from time to time. But, but know this about battles that the living God gets into. He's omnipotent and he don't fight fair. The living God has never been in a fair fight. Omnipotence does not participate in a fair fight. Oh, the, the end times. Everybody likes to get all hopped up about the Battle of Armageddon. Oh, the Battle of Armageddon. Oh, the Battle of Armageddon. Read about the Battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. You know what the living God does to end that battle? He shows up and talks. Done. 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 The angel fights no battle against the power of darkness when he stands before the empty tomb. He simply boink, moves the stone, destroys the seal, gets on with his stuff. The soldiers, oh, the big bad boys of the Roman Empire. I missed the part where they effectively adopt a defensive posture and prepare to stand their ground. I say in your outline, Roman numeral C, the soldiers were rattled. That's because try as I might, I couldn't come up with a word that starts with R that is a synonym for anesthetized. You know one, send it to me and I'll... Uh, I'll tip my hat to you. Originally, I said they were rocked, as in <laughs> rocked to sleep. <laughs> Rendered moot. They don't even show up again in the narrative of the tomb. They show up in the narrative of the Gospels slinking to Governor Pilate to tell him how badly they messed up and how ineffective and unsuccessful they were. The agenda of the flesh cannot prevail against the agenda of the king. If you are born again, you ought to thank God for that. Because the agenda of the God who saves overwhelmed even your fallen flesh. And if you're here this morning and the resurrection of Christ is an interesting idea you think about one day a year. First, I'm glad you're here and you are right to devote attention to the reality of the resurrected Christ. But my prayer for you, and if you are wise, your prayer for yourself would be that God the Holy Spirit would touch your heart with the power of his conviction such that you would turn from your sin and cry out to Jesus Christ to save you. It is your only eternal hope. Oh, come to Jesus. Trust him by faith. Well, Roman numeral three, the angel's declaration. The women are there, the angel speaks. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly 
and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. With the events of the empty tomb, with the events of the first Easter, letter A on your outline, Jesus informs us, reminds us, lets us know once again of both his purpose and his power. His purpose, the angel said, you seek Jesus who was crucified. Who was crucified. His crucifixion was an act of supreme divine intentionality. When you consider Christ on the cross, see substitutionary sacrifice. See boundless and measureless love. See a high price being paid to absorb the wrath of God that was due you, but do not see a helpless victim there somehow against his will, dragged there by sinful men. It was not Roman nails or Jewish conspiracies that put Jesus on the cross and held him there. It was his love and submission to his Father's plan and love and intention to redeem his people. There's no victimhood on the cross. There's purpose, eternal Resolute, gracious purpose. Not only his purpose, but also his power. He is risen as he said. His resurrection is not some plan B. His resurrection is not some correction. Three times, at least recently, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, chapter 17, and chapter 20, he has said to his disciples, they're going to kill me when I go to Jerusalem, and three days later, I'm going to rise. <coughs> all of it, laid out in advance, all of it, executed in keeping with his purpose and his mission. The events of that first Easter, Jesus reminds us of his purpose and his power, and he also reminds us of the transforming power in our lives, those of us who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has transformed us from being rebels, lovers of darkness, lovers of our sin. But at the empty tomb, we are encouraged first to come and see. Come and see. Come see the reality of eternal life in the reality of the physically resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, by come and see here, he's not saying go look for a particular cave in or near Jerusalem. Not to us, 20 centuries later. There are a couple of, of, of caves. Our, our Catholic friends have one where they have erected the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
our Anglican friends have one they call the garden tomb, less of a, less of a church, more of a, a sort of museum facility. It's very doubtful either one of them would be the actual grave. I stood at the garden tomb not that many years ago with one of the little retired Anglican priests that are the guides there. We talked for a few minutes and I asked him, I said, is it likely that this is the actual tomb in which Jesus was buried? I'm talking, he's, you know, he said, <clears throat> well, I rather much doubt it because it would seem to me that if we had the actual cave, we'd do awful and idolatrous things to it and none of us would want that. I agree with him about our capacity for awful and idolatrous things and about the unlikelihood that that particular grave is the one in which Jesus lay. Maybe one like it. And I remind you that Christianity is not a faith of artifacts. Christianity is a faith of facts. We have the truth, we don't need the souvenirs. We don't need to know, well, what, where was it? Where was it? We need to, in fact, I mean, not to make light, but I rather suspect that there's a grave somewhere near Jerusalem where Joseph of Arimathea is buried. That's probably the one. Jesus was done with it, and he had it. Why wouldn't he use it? It seems to me. But there was an empty tomb that Sunday morning, and for us, there is the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact, not the artifact. Come and see. Come and see. And then, when you come and see, go and tell. Twice in the text. Go and tell. Go and tell. Your friends. Your neighbors. The people with whom you go to school people with whom you go to work, the people who have a, a circle of their life that overlaps the circle of your life. God has positioned you here, now, as his ambassador into their lostness. Go and tell. Tell.